0: Welcome to Supex Radio, a talk show devoted to startup and early-stage entrepreneurship, angel and venture investing, technology and small business in general. You can find Supex Radio in the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud by searching for Supex Radio. That's S-U-P-X Radio. Also, remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at the Supex. That's at T-H-E-S-U-P-X. And mark your calendars because SUPEX, the Startup Expo, will be July 26th at the Broward Convention Center in Fort Lauderdale again this year. We're expecting 1,000 to 1,500 attendees, and our guest today was uh, one of our keynote speakers last year. And our guest is my friend, marketing guru, self-described vaginopreneur, and I'm happy to say now author, Rachel braun what <laughs> Rachel, welcome to SUPEX Radio.
1: Thanks, Bob. I'm delighted to be back with you.
0: Well, first of all, before we get into some of the questions we talked about, I just wanted to say congratulations. I know that writing a book is a lot of uh, work. My brother has written a couple, and I have behind-the-scenes edit one, and uh, that's heavy lifting, my friend.
1: It really is, especially when it's not your primary livelihood. Uh, (laughs) But there's parts of it, just like everything else, it's a lot of hard work that perhaps you didn't expect, uh, and there have been some really amazing rewards, and it, it feels quite substantial to to be able to say that
0: well I'm sure the audience is you've been on before and uh, I'm delighted to have you back you always have so much to share and you have such a, a positive outlook on life I think it's a really inspiring to particularly to the women in the audience but for all entrepreneurs but before we get into the book and let's kind of get to the backstory of how we got to the book and so if you could tell us a little bit about your background uh, that would be super
1: Okay. Well, I want to start with the background that's directly related to this book before I go all the way back to college, if that's okay with you. However you um, want to do it, I've always, Okay. <laughs> I've worked in building businesses and brands for my whole career, you know, 25 plus years, whether they're brands in large established companies, my own businesses, my own brands. Um, and I've always worked on women's businesses. And as I like to say, I've worked on women's businesses from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes. And I mean, products and services that affect a woman. So, you know, the simple from hair care, skin care, oral care, to the, you know, more serious therapeutic areas, fertility, infertility, um, menstruation, then the not so glamorous foot fungus and hemorrhoids, you name it. If it's on her body and there's a product or service for it, I've probably worked in or around it. Um, that focus became even more, um, laser-like in 2008 when my business partner Mary Yench and I bought an asset, which was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts that was clinically proven to increase arousal desire and satisfaction, a product called Zestra. And we built a company around Zestra, which was able to make the the claims that we improved arousal desire and satisfaction for women, which um, was a huge claim, still is a huge Huge claim, really exciting category, and we found out very quickly that as excited as we were about it, you know, there's some of the some of the bastions of of culture and some of the fundamental systems that we have, you know, in the United States, were a little bit reluctant. And what I mean by that is, we reached out to probably a hundred media outlets, so that could be cable network, website, radio. Um, you name it. And 99% of them said no, meaning we have money to give you. We want to buy ad space so you can talk about our product. And they said, no.
0: Rachel, just Um, interrupt real quickly to give some context. What year would this been?
1: This is 2008.
0: Okay, so 10 years ago.
1: And so it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like in the Stone Ages or when we were driving horse buggies or before women had the vote. So, um, and at that time, just to give you an example, some things have changed. And I I like to talk about the forward progress. But at that point in 2008, um, 2009, 2010, Facebook wouldn't take our ads. It's really hard to believe that that was only 10 years ago. (laughs) Right, but even today they're not taking ads for a lot of these products. So as as, as disheartening as that is, and again, there are spin progress in other areas, but that journey when they went when um, media companies wouldn't take our money for ads, we built the company around a public relations strategy which said if people won't take our money to advertise a product that's clinically proven, that's safe, that's patented, that was proven in a clinically proven pharmaceutical-style study, meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, the the science was good, it was well-controlled, double-blind, placebo-controlled for the pharmaceutical listeners, you know, the way that you really want to test if the active ingredient that you're looking at, if the impact was a result of chance or was a result of the actual active ingredients. And it turns out it was, you know, statistically significant um, and meaningful in a personal setting uh, for women who used it. But what that started, as they started to become a, a voice... The spokesperson for the business, in addition to being um, the president and co-founder, was that there really was this enormous discomfort around female sexual health. As bad as it is around arousal and satisfaction, you know, this terrifying idea somehow that if women um, are sexually satisfied, that the you know the axis upon which the earth spins will somehow grind to a halt. <laughs> um, you know, it affects a lot of these categories that we're in. So for instance, when we went in in 2008 to raise money, um, and at that point, we were 20 years into the, I'm sorry, 10 years into the life of Viagra, and now we're 20 years into the life of Viagra and the other products in the category, that there's really this inherent discomfort and lack of understanding about how a woman's body works, what makes it work, what feels good, what doesn't feel good, um, what feels healthy, what doesn't feel healthy, healthy. And one of the experiences we found ourselves in or the conversations we found ourselves in is, well, I've never heard about this. It must not be a problem. You know, to which we wanted to say, well, be- just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it's not a problem. 43% of women have some sexual concerns or difficulties over the course of their lives. That's a huge number.
0: Is it safe to uh, say that I, most of the people you're talking to were white guys, Rachel?
1: Yeah. And okay. and, and middle I I was too, and am. I was less middle-aged than I am now. (laughs) But, um, you know, there were people who were, you know, within 10 years of me, older or younger. Right. You know, so it wasn't, we're not talking about generations, but we had mostly white men in their late thirties, early forties, which is exactly where I fit at that time. Okay. Uh, And, you know, we had these experiences where we couldn't really get them to hear the story of the business. I know you've heard me talk about this before, but we went into meetings where they would say, well, how is this different than Viagra? And we would explain how the male sexual response worked as a hydraulic pump, and that because Viagra and the drugs like that are vasodilators, they increase the blood flow and the pump pumps up and it works, whereas women are much more complicated in terms of the number of physiological and psychological systems that are at play in their sexual response. Mm -hmm. And we sort of couldn't get their attention. And I joke that I almost wish they had just been looking at their phones. Instead, it was more reaction of, you know, they're elbowing each other and giggling. And with all due deference to seventh graders, I felt a little bit like I was in a seventh grade locker room, you know, where people were giggling behind their hands and making loud jokes about some of their sexual conquests. And, you know, understand we're two executives who had been successful in other realms. We've been working for 25 plus years we you know well educated had big had long track records and were sort of in you know a locker room with people rubbing elbows and for those people who have never raised money the most important thing that happens is you need to have people ask follow-up questions and you need to have some expression of interest for a follow-up meeting and when they're giggling and laughing you know that doesn't really happen so we went into the second meeting and they asked a question about the, about the satisfaction study that we had done and you know we're disheartened to learn that it was mostly about her satisfaction. And Mary and I had um, 11 more meetings in two days and we were pretty confident that if we couldn't get anyone to pay attention long enough to even ask us what are the risks to the business, who do you see as the biggest competitors, um, what keeps you up at night, if we couldn't get into the discussion of the business opportunity, we were never going to be able to raise money. So before the third meeting, we huddled, and I am a a credit card person. I like to track everything Mm -hmm. because I'm a little bit compulsive, and something made me look in my wallet that day, and I had a $100 bill, and Mary and I felt like it was either um, divine intervention or dumb luck, and we used that as the brainstorm for how we would go into the next meeting, and remember, we had 11 more, and right now, we have not gotten anyone's attention. So we go into the next meeting, and we we put the hundred dollar bill on the table and we pause for impact. And we said, um, if anyone asks us a question about the category that we're not able to answer, if someone makes, um, a sexual innuendo that makes us uncomfortable, or maybe even shares a double entendre that makes us blush, this hundred dollars is yours. And then we paused, figured, you know, betting people like to bet. And we said, she likes it more. She wants to have it more. Let's talk about the business model and in that moment as you know we sort of took the oxygen out of the room and we really transformed the dynamic of the folks in the room we basically signaled we're here we're here to stay we're serious business people talking about serious business but if i were to say when did this concept of of orgasmic leadership birth itself it was in that moment it was in that moment when i realized that to lead in this category and to grow a business in this category Was going to be an entirely different exercise than anything that I had ever done before in any other category. And over the course of the last 10 years with that business and with the dozens of others that I've worked with, I've come to find out that there are certain characteristics, there are certain challenges that while they befall all businesses, there are some idiosyncrasies that make building a business in this space particularly challenging. One that I spend a lot of time talking about is the lack of a language. So when we think of sexual response, let's take Viagra, you know, the language you think of is bigger, longer, stronger, four-hour erection. And I often go, when I do a lot of public speaking on this, and I often go into meetings and I say, I want a show of hands. Anybody in the room, man or woman, looking for a partner with a four-hour erection. And while I get giggles, I have very few hands that go up because that language just doesn't make sense for women. They don't think of it as a performance activity. So orgasmic leadership is really about my journey and the journey of dozens of other entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs in building businesses. And what I've done in the book, which is a reflection of you know several dozen interviews, 19 of which I highlighted in the book, is basically use businesses in this space to illustrate fundamental business philosophies, for instance, or or points of view. So for instance, what do you do when there's new opportunities in technology? And then I will use companies who have taken a new approach to a technological solution to deliver products and services in the area of women's sexual health, reproductive health, and wellness. Are there new models of social impact? This is one of my favorite ones. And in this Section, I really talk about people who are looking at the business of business entirely differently. And again, I do it through a lens that focuses on women's health. So, to give a very concrete example, you know, the old model of buy a pair of shoes, give a pair of shoes, which is amazing. It's a fabulous model. It's incredible. It's given way in the businesses that I see being started in women's sexual health and reproductive health. Buy a pair of shoes, or in this case, buy menstrual protection and then teach people how to make menstrual protection so that they not only have menstrual protection, but they now have an economic engine through which they could support themselves. So it's it's, it's a much bigger, societally impactful way of looking at things. So now instead of just donating products or pads or menstrual protection, I'm partnering, some of these companies are partnering with facilities or they're creating facilities in other parts of the world where they provide the training they provide the investment for people to make products that they can use manufacture and sell which so, is just a huge transformation in in terms of how to think about how businesses can impact the world
0: so it's pretty clear that from your background was Destra and then you rebranded it as Sempre right and then uh, and then from Spark Solutions for Growth, which is your consultancy that you've seen and had these experiences over a couple of decades now, and that was gave you examples and inspired you to dig deeper. And then it sounds like you said earlier that you interviewed close to a couple of dozen people or you at least used a couple of dozen uh, interviews in the book. Is this a how-to book? Do I read this book if I'm a female entrepreneur and this is going to tell me the things that I need to do to succeed in uh, – say the women's health environment, or how would you characterize the book?
1: I would say it's meant to be a business book Mm -hmm. that intends to educate and entertain. Okay. So it focuses on fundamental principles that I think are applicable for any business, regardless of what space you're in, in terms of, you know, you need a strategy, you need to be solving a problem, you need to have a reason that someone's going to use currency to use your solution, either in place of something else they're using, in addition to something else they're using, trained from having, acting not at all to solve this problem, to adding the thing that you're offering. So really it is clearly in a business context, so I think in that sense, it's meant to be illustrative of some key principles that could be applied across businesses. I focus it in this space because that's where I, you know, I'm passionate about the businesses in, the, in those places. I think they're fascinating. I think the people creating them are fascinating, and so I thought they'd be a great platform to illustrate some of these principles. So when people ask me who the book is for, I say it's for entrepreneurs, male or female, it's for female entrepreneurs because a lot of the women highlighted in the book are female and are solving specifically female health problems. And then, of course, anyone who's in the business of sexual health, which is not limited um, to men or women. And that could be devices, it could be technologies, it could be business models, it could be fundraising, it could be any range of places where you can enter into this big world that I call you know, women's sexual health and wellness.
0: And how did you organize the book? I mean, is it kind of soup to nuts from ideation and raising capital? Is it like a linear progression or did you organize it in some other ways like around marketing or finance, not kind of the trajectory?
1: So I organized it around themes that I thought um, were important for people to think about when they're building a business. So there were basically six areas. Mm -hmm. Um, I obviously, before I got to the fundamental sections that were built upon the interviews, I really talked about the business itself. Why would anyone care about this thing we call lady business? Why is it a good business opportunity? And what are some of the challenges? And really talking about how the numbers, how the problems, how the marketplace is just ripe for explosion. So I broke it then into sections where I talked about technology, which I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. you know, are there better ways to deliver solutions in particular aspects of women's health through technical solutions, whether that's a device, a new ingredient, um, a new approach. I talked about distribution. One of the things we see a lot of in the female health space is doing a better job of getting more customized, personalized products to a woman, you know, at the time that she needs it you know, one particular case would be menstruation. So there are a number of different companies, um, one of which was highlighted in the book, which talks about basically putting together your own custom, you know, birch box for menstruation, if you will. Mm -hmm. So you get the products you need that you need for your particular body that you need for your um, particular flow in the case of of, uh, menstruation, and it gets delivered in a private, discreet, um, classic way to your door. Uh, We talked a lot about different business models. How are people looking at the business and coming up with different models that could be solutions, creative solutions that I talked about, education, because you can't really be in women's health without being in the healthcare part of women's health. So a couple of the people that I highlighted in that section are really deliverers of care. And I always point out, and I like to emphasize that I am not a doctor, although people often ask me that. And I say my parents could be proud because I'm a fake doctor, but I really focus on the business side of health and what some of the folks talking about in education, they're educating women about how to experience satisfaction. They're educating women about what are the signs of breast cancer and the side effects and the other things that might happen to your body and where can you find products and solutions um, so that you have better outcomes and better quality of life. And then social impact, which as I said, is the one that I have a lot of heart for because these women are in business. Most of the businesses I highlighted, most of the people I highlighted are for-profit business people. But they're taking a look at how substantially you can change the world by having this impact. And I wanna go back for a minute to when you talk about menstrual health in developing countries, many young girls miss days of school a month because they don't have the appropriate... menstrual protection. How transformative is it if these women and young girls now have products that they can use that they can go to school, that they can stay educated so they ultimately can get a job so that they could potentially change the cycle of poverty that their family has been in. When I think of business doing things like that, it is so exciting to me and so powerful to think about the ability that businesses have to really transform opportunities that people have in life
0: yeah, that's pretty cool stuff when you start to see the impact of what uh, where some of this stuff leads. how did you how did you come up with a couple of dozen people that uh, you ended up interviewing? Because I think interviewing technique is just great for a lot of reasons.
1: yeah, it's interesting. I just want to step back for a minute and and give credit to Karen Kahn, who was a a woman I met at an event. and she said, You know what, Rachel, I know you talk a lot about leadership and entrepreneurship, but you know, that's boring, why don't you talk about that in the context of the category that you work in? Why don't you call it orgasmic leadership? And I said, Karen, that might be the greatest name I've ever heard, but I can tell you from doing, you know, dozens of presentations every year, year after year, no one's hiring me from a presentation title that says orgasmic leadership. When I get there, do they wanna hear about this category? Do they wanna hear about the interesting techniques? and approaches that people are are using to solve problems and get their product into the hands of consumers, absolutely. But that headline isn't going to sell, presentation. But a couple months later, I happened to be sitting, you know, just thinking, having some thinking time, and literally, like a bolt of lightning, it struck me that that was the name for a book. I didn't have much more in my mind besides that, but that the particular challenges and experiences... And nuances and idiosyncrasies that women have to work through and that men have to work through to build businesses in this space would be an interesting topic for a book. So I just started out because I've been in the space a long time and I sent emails to people that I knew. And I thought, you know, if I did a dozen interviews, that could be that would be interesting and let's see where it goes from there. And as I mentioned, by the time that I was done, I had done close to 40 And one of the interesting things about being in female sexual health, it's a pretty small world and lots of people know each other and refer to one another and, and collaborate and co promote. And it was through that every person I spoke to, um, sent me to a few other people. Sometimes I literally would just stumble across a person and reach out to them and say, I've seen what you're doing. I'd love to talk. So I would say you know, probably more than 50% of the people I knew I had worked with in some capacity. Some had been clients, some people I had collaborated with. Um, and then a good chunk were people that I just knew because of, we're working in the same space. So one particular example, this young woman by the name of Suhani Jalada, I happened to read about her in the Duke Alumni Magazine. You know, we both went there undergrad. She was there many, many years after I was. <laughs> and I said, how interesting is this young woman who is building this solution for menstrual hygiene for women in the slums of Mumbai. So I literally reached out to her using the Duke Connection. She agreed to speak to me. She was one of the very first interviews I did. And then, you know, because life is funny and sometimes um, luck is being in the right place when opportunity strikes, this woman, Suhani Jalada, in 2016, was selected as one of the Glamour College Women of the Year for this very unique, amazing approach. And lo and behold, who did she meet at that glamour event? But a woman who would become even more famous, an actress who was going to become royalty. Flash forward two years that when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle decided that they wanted to name seven charities that they wanted people to give money to in lieu of wedding gifts, one of them was Suhani's foundation.
0: That's so cool.
1: And if that wasn't cool enough, then she got invited, Suhani, with some of the people she works with, to the wedding and went.
0: Yeah, I thought so I saw her that there.
1: Was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she did mention you were sitting near each other. But, you know, your hat was a little too big for yeah, her to see anything. Exactly. You know, but those kinds of things are just so exciting. You know, I, I find business exciting. I've always been in this space, but the, the pace of change and the room for improvement and the opportunity to solve problems here in, in this very big space is so exciting. And, and when I meet someone like Suhani, who's making those changes or, and, and sort of really moving the world forward, as well as the dozens of, dozens of other people, I continue to be energized. It energizes the work that I do for other people. It energizes me in my approach to continuing to want to learn as much as I can learn um, about this space. And it sort of feeds feeds on itself. And, you know, each day this world that I'm in becomes more and more connected. And I would say that many of the people in this space would say the same thing. There's a great sense of collaboration in this space because you really are pushing a boulder uphill. And so even if someone is competing with you and they're trying to push up the same boulder... We'll both be more successful if we help one another, if we are able to bring financing to the category, if we are able to bring media interest to the category, if we're able to access supply chain opportunities that help improve our margins. So it's not just I don't care about winning. Everybody cares about winning who's running a business. But there is a sense that as this grows, you know, the rising tide raises all boats.
0: Are those three things you just mentioned the three big biggest inhibitors? Do you see to uh, to uh, businesses in this space? Is it capital? Is it supply chain? Is it media, or is it twenty things? And there's one in each chapter. Uh, are some,
1: you know, stronger there are a lot of things. I would others? say, yeah, yeah. I would say financing. Um, is very difficult. And I'm not telling you or your listeners anything new that the majority of venture capital doesn't go to women. Um, and that the majority, certainly the large minority, um, there's a very small minority of women who have decision-making power in those, um, investment companies or in the venture firms. Mm -hmm. Um, the third is that, the majority of people in this space tend to be female. So you add that all together and you don't have people with a lot of access to capital, um, or people who are making decisions who have access to capital. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, when a, when a venture capitalist is presented with a technology company, I doubt, you know, for instance, the people who invested in snap said, Oh, this is perfect for me. You know, I'm a 45 year old woman or man and I need to be able to, um, send stories, um, that disappear and use this whole new way to communicate. However, they can anticipate that there will be demographics, there will be target groups who will find that interesting and they can invest in them. What happens in female health is if they, as I said, if they're not familiar with it, then it's not a business opportunity or it's a niche.
0: Is that simply because most of the people that are hearing the story are men and the whole subject makes them uncomfortable? I mean, is it that simple?
1: I would say that's a, I mean, it's a large part of it. And I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to stereotype every person because there's a bigger societal issue that we're uncomfortable talking about sex. We're, you know, we come from so many different cultural backgrounds. Um, so many people have either uneducated or unpleasant experiences with sex. We're not educating kids in school about what sex education is. There's a rule, even in the, the states that do require sex education, a subset of them don't require it to be scientifically accurate. So I don't, it's not just the venture capitalist. It's a sort of systemic problem that we have with teaching people the language, knowing the right name for body parts, knowing how they work, um, knowing what goes where, knowing what pleasure is. It's a very, very big, complicated problem that is not just a fault of certainly people sitting in venture capital um, offices deciding who gets funding. But is it, a broader, know,
0: is it a broader problem beyond just, you know, kind of the women's plumbing issue? I mean, is it there are? Other, oh, yeah.
1: I mean, oh, know. yeah, absolutely. It's huge. It's, you know, when you think of women's health and people ask me, what does that mean? It sort of means everything. I mean, it, it's incontinence, which isn't obviously just not men, just sure. not women, but sure. this includes men. It's fertility, it's infertility, it's pregnancy, it's inability to get pregnant, it's motherhood, it's menopause. So it's, a, it's an enormous range from you know, cradle to grave, as some marketers have said in the past. So it's not just, I'm not interested in menstruation, so I can't be interested in women's health. Um, and I think the lens that people are using is particularly narrow. It's not just about simple problem solution. Sometimes it is, but it's also about quality of life. It's also about intimate enjoyment. So historically, when people have talked about incontinence and businesses are in the incontinence space, they talk about, you know, I want to reduce the number of leakages. I want to reduce the number of pads a woman wears. But there's or a man. But there's also now a whole focus with some of these newer companies and the technology approaches that, by the way, if I'm able to reduce the leakage, which means I'm strengthening the vaginal tissue, I'm improving the vaginal laxity, that she might have a better experience, either a less painful experience, a more intimate experience, a more enjoyable experience. I literally was speaking to somebody this morning who's in the incontinence space, and he said, and he's in the device category. He hears stories every day about people who had to literally quit their jobs because incontinence was in the way of them doing their job. That's not a women's issue. Right. That's a productivity issue. That's a, I mean, all these things are much bigger than women's health. There's also a lot of research, two pieces of research that I reference in the book that I find fascinating and I wish I could shout from every rooftop. One is there's evidence that children who are given the right language for body parts and what goes where and what works and how it works, they're much more likely to report instances of sexual violence or assault. So if for no other reason, you know, I would have a lot of heart for this area that we would be protecting kids and adults from, we'd increase the chances that they would have the language to navigate through impossible situations. The second is that there's a lot of evidence that focuses on many different parts of a woman's life and her entire physiology that says an active, engaged, satisfying sex life is good for your health. You live longer, you have more energy, you sleep better. And this isn't just, you know, believe me because I'm saying it to you on a radio show. I I can send you articles that describe the many impacts that a satisfying sex life can have on the overall quality of your life. So when I look at these, I don't look at these these categories as just a monthly issue or women's plumbing. I look at these as a quality of life issue. And to the extent that these companies are able to make the discussions broader, I think they have a better chance at being successful.
0: a different question. This is about putting the book together. Did, I don't, did you self-publish or did you go through a publisher?
1: I worked with a boutique editor that really just focuses on business books. So I worked with an editor who helped... Um, Shape my thinking, who helped uh, make my story flow uh, in a more interesting way. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, it's incredibly hard to write. It's incredibly hard to find the people that you want to work with. Um, The fun part is when you see the book published, but there's a lot of work uh, to get there. But it was published by a company called Indie Books.
0: So let me ask a question. Did you face the same issues with the book as you see that they've that uh, you fa- that these women face in their businesses addressing this space, or it's no? It's such
1: a great question. Absolutely. It's a great question. And even after all these years, Bob, of being in this space, I still can be stunned. So <laughs> Even I 10 years after your Facebook to, story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and people today don't believe me when I tell that story. And I said, here's the New York Times article. Here's the um, interview we did on ABC News. You know, it was all over the place. It was very clear that it was a well-researched story and that some of these issues still exist today. So I was told to reach out to um, a PR firm Mm -hmm. that happened to have a real specialty in book publishing. So I said, great. So I reach out and I send my materials and I was referred to them by my publisher and The answer I got back was, you know, we like to guarantee results. I'm not sure I can guarantee results because, you know, I'm not sure I can get articles published in this space. I'm not sure that I can get this story on TV. And so the person I had reached out to ultimately rejected my business, essentially. They said, we publish books, but we can't work with you. We won't publish yours. No, we can't publicize your book because we can't guarantee that we can get results. And my answer was, you know, is that not the ultimate irony that I can't, you won't do publicity for a book, which is about how difficult it is to build these businesses because people won't give you money or the time of day.
0: You just became a chapter. So,
1: yeah, yeah, just yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I just, I, that PR firm just became, you know, just a, another lesson learned. But on the positive side, there really are many things that are changing. In terms of the sheer number of people starting companies, the sheer number of companies in this space, the growing awareness from the large companies that avoiding this entire area of women's health is a really potentially huge missed opportunity, and that there are many, many different ways to skin this cat. And I do see every day new companies being created, new companies being funded, they even have names for it now, you know, they call it sex tech and fem tech, this world um, that we play in. And the biggest difference for me that has made an impact is that we're looking at women as human beings that have a range of experiences as opposed to you're a menstruating woman. So this is how we talk to you or you are, you're an infertile woman. So this is how we talk to you or you're in menopause. So in many cases we don't talk to you at all. Um, And it's really changing, I think, how we approach women in the marketplace and hopefully as human beings.
0: And is that what you hope to accomplish the book or was it that and more?
1: It was that and. uh, And the list keeps getting longer. The more uh, time the book spends in the world and the more conversations I have and the more opportunities I have to present, you know, the idea that this is going to explode. This category, however you define it, is going to explode. There will be people who make millions and millions if not billions of dollars focusing on how to solve these very complicated problems for women. And the idea that in some small way I will be part of that conversation or will have had a role in that conversation is really exciting because I think this is an an enormous cataclysmic opportunity um, in business and I'm thrilled to be talking to people who are part of it. I'm, I'm thrilled to be working in this space because it's really breakthrough. And it's it's real. Something enormous will happen in the very near future as a result of the combined efforts of all the people working in this space. And that really excites me.
0: I can tell. Uh, as, <laughs> as well. And you should you should be you should be deservedly proud. So when was the book released?
1: May 15th. So really, really brand new.
0: And how's the response been so far? I know it hasn't been that long, but it's
1: just been um, it's a couple of weeks. It's been po- really positive. I, you know, I, as I said, I have the opportunity to speak at a number of different companies that, you know, historically never would have looked at a business like this. But given that I can present it in a business context, they're a little bit more comfortable that they're talking about general business than about vaginas. But I think there's are get- becoming a greater openness Uh, to this in large corporations. Clearly, as I said, a rising tide raises all boats. There's measurable, meaningful, public investment in this space, in a variety of different spaces. Um, About a year and a half ago, CB Insights published what they called the FemTech map. And that reflected $1.1 billion um, in investment in this world of female health as they defined it. And that Map becomes more obsolete every day, in the sense that new companies are being started, companies are being merged. You know, some obviously are closing. The, the statistics of success are the same in this space as as in any other um, entrepreneurial endeavor. Uh, but there's just constant forward motion and activity.
0: Has anything res- surprised you about the response thus far? I mean, I know it's only been three, just slightly under four weeks, but.
1: There are still things that make me say, oh, I really don't think I'm in 2018. You know, someone called me who received an email um, about the book and said, oh, I just bought it. I wanted to congratulate you, but I can't say the name of the book on the phone as if, I don't know, Big Brother or somebody was going to come down and, you know, cut your phone line or fire you if you dare to, utter the words, orgasmic leadership, um, you know, on, a, on an open line. But I would say more often than not, the there's a greater openness uh, to talking about leadership. And one of the things I learned is that if I get to sexual health through leadership, that's okay. And I don't have to run in with orgasmic leadership, but we can talk about it from the perspective that you and I were discussing, which is it's leadership in this category and what can we learn and take away that's relevant to business leadership in general and then potentially female sexual health leadership in specific. The other piece is because these are such difficult conversations to have, oftentimes as the speaker or as the listener. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking about how do you talk about hard problems? How do you use language that doesn't make people uncomfortable? How do you discuss business challenges so that you don't lose people before the conversation even starts? Now, I recently gave a presentation um, to a company that said, you know, we're very conservative. We're very, very conservative, and the people who are in the audience are conservative. You know, we want you not to use certain words. And, you know, that even got down to the fact that they didn't want me to say the name of the book, which was Orgasmic Leadership. And, you know, the person I was dealing with felt very apologetic. I said, you know what? I get it. This happens. I can still educate people about the language in this space. I can still talk about leadership and do it in a way that fits within your culture. There are very many people in this space. And there's extremes. There are some people who are, you know, out there, however you define that, and some who stay very safely in the space of the problem-solution discussion. And I'm somewhere um, in the middle, you know, maybe a little bit over the edge to out there and, um, and less over the edge to conservative. And I think that it's the responsibility of the people in this space to figure out a way that the conversation could be had. Well, the I world think, isn't going to change, yeah,
0: I think it was very without w- that. I think it was very wise of you and showed a lot of self-control to go through with that speaking engagement. I think a lot of people would have said, well, then forget it. I mean, can't you see the title of my book? But I think it says something about you that instead of reacting, you saw the opportunity uh, and, uh, and there was probably a need in that audience. Also think that the person that invited you in that organization was probably fairly brave.
1: Very brave, and and we collaborated to make it a presentation and a discussion that you know she she that the team could live with, and I was fine with that. And you know the person felt bad asking me to change my presentation. And quite honestly, when I can't say vagina or sexual or sexual health or orgasmic leadership, you know those are things I'm used to saying. Those are things that are not offensive to me. Those are things words I'm using in the course of communicating about issues that I think are important and businesses that I think are important. But to your point, Bob, if I can't even get in the door, you can't get your message to have out. a conversation. There's no opportunity to change how the conversation happens. Um, I, I There's one example that I wanted to give that that just shows really how far we still have to go and hopefully at the same time how much progress we're making. Uh, and I might have mentioned this to you before. Several years ago, there was an article, um, the cover of the New York Times Magazine section called Unexcited, Is There a Pill for That? And it happened to talk about some of the products that were in development, pharmaceutical products in this article that were in development for female sexual health. And there was a comment in the article that has stayed with me that I think is so important to understand how big this is and how how much progress we have to make is they said it's one of the few categories where there is a concern that these products in clinical tests will work too well, lest there be, and now if you could see me, I'm doing the air quotes, sex praise binges of infidelity, with the implication being that if we had products that improved women's feelings of desire and arousal, that there would be absolute pandemonium in the streets, because a sexually aroused woman, obviously, is a dangerous creature. Rather and, Victorian. <laughs> yeah, and I wrote, that, I wrote an article about, about that, and I said... You know, I wasn't clear that there was total pandemonium in the streets for, you know, a sexually aroused woman that we had to lock the children up. <laughs> but I am I, I I don't see that there's that same level of concern that our streets are filled with men with four hour erections. I was going to say, we, we, the fear up? of
0: priapism yeah. ramping yeah. through our yeah. society. Are, are people
1: locking their doors <laughs> and pulling down their shades? And I think continuing to bring things like that to light. And as you said, you know, getting out of the Victorian era and saying we're in the modern era and. One language doesn't one one size doesn't fit all, and one way of approaching this conversation doesn't fit all. But not having the conversation in my mind and from my perspective clearly it doesn't help anyone.
0: Out of curiosity, how long did it take you to write the book?
1: Actual actual aggressive writing, mm-hmm. I would say six or seven months, and I would say the interviews took probably six months. So there was some crossover there, you know, from the idea to the published date was two years. From the idea that I sat, from the day that I said, oh, that's a book, till the book appeared on Amazon, was a little bit less than two years. That's but pretty good, But there's so actually. much of that where other activities are happening right. that don't feel quite as productive.
0: And so I imagine there's lots of speaking engagements, et cetera, because you were speaking before you did the book. So what's next for Rachel Brown Shurrell? Is there a book number two, or and uh, uh, what comes next?
1: Well, a couple of things. I joke that I did double the number of interviews that I put in the book, so if you know, people as it appears to be besides my mother and family members are buying the book that maybe there is a book too, even with the content I already have. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, because the bulk of what I do really is building businesses and building businesses in this space. um, What's next for me is to continue to work with companies and brands to make these products and services available to really solve big challenges or provide better solutions to problems that haven't been adequately solved in the past for women.
0: And you do that via Spark Solutions for Growth, right? That's the name of your firm? I
1: do that via Spark Solutions for Growth. Absolutely.
0: And if I'm a listener in the audience and I could use your help based on you know, what I learned from your book and uh, what you've talked about today, where do I go to uh, find you in Spark Solutions?
1: Um Spark Solutions for Growth. Uh you can look me up, Rachel Braun You can Google Orgasmic Leadership. Uh people can reach out to me directly. I'm at R B S C H E R L at Spark Solutions for Growth. The book is available on Amazon, iTunes, and Barnes and Noble. And uh if you look up entrepreneur which is a, a word that I've trademarked, you can find me also. So if you're interested in this space, if you're interested in female sexual health and you put my name in or you call me, you will find me and I will answer the phone or answer the email.
0: So our guest today has been Rachel Braun-Schurl, my friend, marketing guru, self-described entrepreneur and author of Orgasmic Leadership. Rachel, I wish you so much luck with your great new book. I'm excited to read it myself. Thank you so so much for being our guest today.
1: Thank you so much and wish you continued success, um, really helping entrepreneurs figure out what they need to do and how to build important businesses. Thanks, Rachel. Have a great day. You too, Bob.